Want a smoother contour and more youthful-looking cheeks? Rediscover a younger-looking you by adding volume to the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC, part of the number one selling collection of dermal fillers, based on January 2022 provider survey data. With help from Juvederm Voluma XC and a licensed specialist, you can achieve a more youthful cheek look completely customized for your goals. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. This week, we have two guests who've been very influential in my life, Dr. Kirk Parsley and Dr. Martin Poblano. This episode is going to concentrate on the rise of psychedelic therapy, which I never thought in my life I would do. But it was something that was recommended to me by people I trust my life with. Regardless, if you have any preconceived notions about psychedelics, listen to this entire episode. It is changing lives. Dr. Kirk Parsley and Dr. Poblano are leading the way in psychedelic research and therapy. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Martin Poblano and Dr. Kirk Parsley. Welcome back, guys. I'm actually excited about this episode. I've got uh, two, well, two guys that have been uh, influential in, in my life. I know I look at Kirk right now and I'm <laughs> smiling, not always in, in positive ways. Uh, but Dr. Uh, Martin uh, Poblanco, who, uh, uh, well, we'll get to how he came into my life, but this one is going to be focused on the rise of psychedelic therapy, which I'm going to be honest, I never thought in my life I would do. I was closed-minded to that. It just came from a traditional Roman Catholic family uh, where drugs or, or the perception of drugs, and I think LSD had a horrible, just, you know, my parents grew up in, in the Bay Area in, yeah. you know, the, the 60s, 70s, and they had a horrible perception of LSD. And that's what we believe psychedelics to be, but uh, opened my aperture, uh, not only to Kirk recommended it, a good friend, Dan Luna recommended it, and then a, a Dr. Chris Free, who I know you know, recommended it. And I said, okay, hey, if three guys who I trust my life with are saying, hey, you need to go do this to, to improve your life, then uh, then it was, uh, it was good enough for me. And hence, I went forward and did the psych- psychedelic therapy. So... Uh, Dr. Martin, I want to jump in. First, I want to hear your story and, and sort of take us from from your you know upbringing to uh, how you got involved with psychedelic therapy and why you're so passionate and why you're leading the way in in many uh, degrees. Uh, you know, leading the uh, the therapy and, and trying to push it even within the United States for uh, for the benefit of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. No, thanks for that. So I got into this trying to help a family member. Um, I'm a Mexican and Austrian nationals. So I was born in Austria. I grew up in Mexico. Uh, from my mom's side of the family, they're all physicians. So that was kind of the career path that I had for for myself. 
But then I had a close family member go through treatment and I saw the profound change in her, how she went from, you know, using cocaine and being in denial that it was a problem to actually confronting the issues that it was causing her and then taking the necessary steps to move away from her addiction. And it was so dramatic that with one treatment, she could change from uh, addictive thinking and denial to actually accepting that she needed to move away from Mexico City where she was using really stuck with me. And at the time I was finishing medical school. So I went on, finished medical school, started my residency program, but it was something that never really left my consciousness to know that there was something that could potentially cure addiction that I took a year off from my ophthalmology training. So I was going to become an eye surgeon to try to open up a clinic and it worked well. So it would just never look back. And so you say, you know, this treatment was just life-changing for her what mm -hmm. what was the treatment previous to that that i'm assuming was just so unsuccessful that you guys took the leap to psychedelics uh we had tried all the traditional or conventional ways of a dealing of dealing with addiction which is you know 12 steps uh rehab uh kicking her out of the house uh all the things that you know western society recommends in dealing with problematic <clears throat> drug use and it just wasn't working so i had found out about Ibogaine, which is an African psychedelic, and its potential to treat addiction by watching a documentary. And I was really struck by it, because I knew the healing power of psychedelics, because my dad was a hippie. He took me to a peyote circle when I was a teenager. So I was always aware that these were compounds that garnered a lot of respect and reverence from my elders. So it was just kind of natural for me to, to try to explore a natural alternative to treating addiction. Now, before we get to, uh, to to where you're at today, running these these therapeutic uh, sort of uh, retreats, how did you two meet? Because uh, I know Kirk, you've been uh, you know influential in getting a lot of seals post retirement into this therapy, sort of as a mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to make a leap for post traumatic stress and, and to combat a lot of the depression and anxiety and, and things that come with all the uh, the booms, the bangs, and the uh, yeah killing I mean, of people. I mean. PTSD is a, you know, it's a syndrome, right? So, um, you know, syndrome means that it, it doesn't fit nicely into any box and we're just clumping a bunch of symptoms together and calling it uh, one thing. Um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to have PTSD to get the benefit from the psychedelics, right? The psychedelics are... Um, you know, they're working through something called the default mode network where they're where it's um it's how how you view yourself and how you view the world is pretty constant and it's hard to get out of and part of that is what we call the ego and so as you're as you're trying to get out of that you're using the same pathways that you always use to try to come up with a different result and the psychedelics are going, well, let's block all of those and let's let all these regions of the brain communicate. And then you see all kinds of different connections or you, you experience all sort of different connections. A little off topic. Um, but anyway, um, you'd have to give the details of the names because I, I don't remember that. But I so when I was the doc at group one, he called me or one of them called me and we had lunch down the Coronado Brewing Company, and they were primarily talking about opiate addictions um, and um, assuming that we would have a lot of it. And we really just didn't. If we did, I didn't know about it. Um, I didn't prescribe a lot of opiates. Um, I, you know, I, I did have a few guys that were kind of hooked up 
on tramadol and like having a hard time getting off of that but for the most part like pretty rare um but we had uh i had had a, a pretty severe ptsd pretty severe tbi patient um who like as you're saying he'd been you know he'd been through nico he'd had the full evaluation mm -hmm. he'd had all the studies he'd he had either he was either on or had tried had been on uh 17 different medications he was getting darker he was getting worse he was getting he was getting fatter he was getting more depressed he was getting you know, more ruminative like just these angry spirals that ran through his head all day i was genuinely afraid of him and he came in my office every day and talked to me every day um and then he just went off to the Amazon, got out of the military and he threw away all his medications. And he said, I'm not dying from these medications. If I'm going to die, I'm just going to go die in nature. And, and he went out there and he lived with a shaman for 30 days and he lived literally nude in the Amazon for 30 days and ate off the land and did ayahuasca every third day, I think, and did Kundalini yoga every day for like four to six hours. <clears throat> he came back really, sh a really short version of it is, when we when we got reintroduced and I talked to him, I, a lot of times I wouldn't know who people were because I was the doctor for like 2,000 people. So I would, you know, I'd just like wait until something sparked and I couldn't figure out who he was after talking to him for 30 minutes. And the, like I said, this guy had spent 100 hours in my office and uh, he finally said something. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he's it's like, you. He's like, who do you think I was? So I was like, I don't know, but not. Like, I still don't believe it. Like, I like I get it now. You're saying that, but you still don't look like you to me. And, and it wasn't somebody I had a casual acquaintance with. Like, I knew this guy. I had spent hours and hours and hours this close to him. Um, and he is complete transformation. He'd lost, like, 60 pounds. He was just like, like all of his facial muscles moved different. His eyes were bigger. His eyes were wider. You know, it's like everything about him, the way he talked, everything about him was different. And uh, so he had contacted me probably about a month after this had happened so when they started talking about psychedelics just like you i grew up completely anti-drug like every every drug was on par i didn't care if you're injecting yeah, heroin hippie. injecting yeah. steroids injecting like whatever i didn't care what you're doing smoking pot is all wrong and uh because of that patient's experience and he'd done that when he got out of the military complete transformation of his life and he runs a non-for-profit now to help people and he tells that story but i didn't ask him so i won't i won't mention his name um uh but because of that experience i was like hmm, well maybe there is something to these drugs so when he started talking to me about it it piqued my curiosity in a way that would have like a month before i would have been like i'm not interested yeah thanks for launching it would have been over um but he introduced me to the to the concept. Um, I was really curious about the 5-MeO, and he facilitated me trying the 5-MeO. Um, like almost all the treatments that I recommended for the team guys, I did first. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd do a little research on it myself. This one I didn't have a chance. I think we did it the same day or the next day or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a couple of days later, I think. But, um, y yeah, so I, I was open to the idea and then uh, I was I was still planning to go down to Crossroads when he had that center down there and uh, try it. hadn't gotten hadn't gotten down there yet. And then one of our mutual friends was really 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 struggling. Um, and I was like, well, I haven't tried it yet, but 
I don't know what else to do for this guy. He's yeah. he's done yeah. everything. Like he's been through every treatment option we had, and he's a very dear friend of mine. And I'm like, well, if this thing kills you, you know, it's better than you suiciding. So let's let's go try it. And we tried it, and he had a major transformation. And that was kind of the beginning of let's our, do some our community here. doing yeah. that. Um, but you can give more details about how we actually got in touch. I don't mm -hmm. I don't really remember that. Yeah, so I was running. Um, I was running a clinic called Crossroads, which was for opioid addiction. So we we were in Tijuana, and we were seeing you know uh, a lot of heroin addiction patients coming through. And, and I'm sorry, it's so it's legal in Mexico at this point. There's actually retreats and centers that are. Yeah, I would say there's around 50 clinics at this point in Mexico. Uh, we were the first one. Um, I I started in 2000, so it's been about 22 years. So and, is, it, is it true that it was called Cross Crossroad because of Eric Clapton? No. Okay. No. There was another crossroads though in Antigua, okay. which okay. is okay. Why it's confusing to people. But and so you were one of the first in Mexico. Yeah, we were the first uh, physicians and the first clinic to to operate and treat addiction. And ibogaine was never scheduled in Mexico, so it, it falls into this gray area of not being illegal, but not being really recognized by the Mexican government as a medication. Even it's more like a supplement. So it's it's just like an unknown to. Like GHB was 10 years ago or 15 years e ago. Even yeah. to this day, it's not. It's not scheduled, correct. And it's actually only scheduled. It's only illegal in seven countries. So Canada, it's not illegal. In the Bahamas, it's not illegal. Costa Rica, Brazil, all these countries, it's just not scheduled. Did the U.S. put it in the most restrictive category in the 1960s because they found that it causes hallucinations. So they're like, well, let's lump it into you know, all these other psychedelics. When And I, I think what happened with the psychedelics was not that some congressman's daughter or something had an lsd trip bad and jumped and, out of a window and so that was and that was the end of psychedelics yeah that created a moral panic and, and then yeah. also you know the nixon administration used it to try to suppress the anti-war movement because they're like okay it, it's it's you know black people and it's hippies how do we go after them by by criminalizing their drugs which was mm -hmm. cannabis and psychedelics so it's like this whole kind of like other sub story which is pretty dark but uh, yeah the point <laughs> is it got it got scheduled in the u.s so it's schedule one which means no medical use and high potential for abuse and on both those counts it's completely wrong because right. it has no potential for abuse it's like the least recreational of, of the psychedelics why would you do that to yeah, yourself exactly. <laughs> we're, we're gonna get to that we're gonna yeah <laughs> yeah you can't even like navigate the world you're basically laying down in bed yeah. you know unable to to really move coherently um, so I can't remember how we got there. What was the question initially? So basically how you guys met. How we met. Oh, how we met. Yeah, so yeah. were you instrumental in the policy for the Mexican government? No. no? So um, I, I, wouldn't, I did not discover Ibogaine. So Ibogaine was rediscovered in the West by a, a guy called Howard Lotzhoff. So he took it in 1962 and he realized that his withdrawal was gone. So he, he kind of discovered that it has this effect of taking away withdrawal and taking away cravings for opioids. So I was just doing opioid treatments, and then in 2015, I had a Marine come through that was shooting heroin, and he did well, and he reported his PTSD was gone. So I became really intrigued by that, because there's nothing in the West that actually cures PTSD. There's treatments that we can give people to blunt their symptoms, to make them numb, to help them sleep better, but nothing that actually addresses the root cause. So we then did some brain scans. We took a guide to get a SPECT scan before Ibogaine and then after Ibogaine. And that was enough data, even though it was only two patients that we got those scans on, for me to feel confident to approach you know, uh, special operations doctors um, like Dr. Parsley. So I got connected to him. I told him we had something that could help his friends. And yeah, he sent that patient who did really well. What, what was it about the brain scans? 
Uh, there was see? there was functional changes and there was blood flow changes. So there was um, obviously something happening that was profound. It wasn't enough um, enough. Uh, patients to really conclusively say that it was st statistically significant, right. but we knew that there was some functional changes and there was there were blood flow changes. But there's organ. I know like John Hopkins is is conducting a lot of research. I know University of Texas just stood up center. Are they are are they taking that research further? To, Absolutely, to find conclusive yeah. So uh, UT Austin's Dell Medical School they started a center called the Center for Psychedelic Therapy and Research. Or psychedelic research and therapy, yeah, and they, all the um, universities are jumping on race. Yeah. Right but now. what's unique about the one in Texas is that they want to focus on veterans and military families. Yeah. So it's it's pretty phenomenal. So they want to take patients before they do ibogaine, do a brain scan, and then have them come back and do biomarkers and brain scans. So right. really having kind of that before and after very kind of well documented, well, I, which which is which has been the problem for mm -hmm. all of these novel treatments is that we don't have any baselines on anybody, right? And uh, I don't know if you know Karen Kelly at uh, NHRC in, in Point Loma. Mm -hmm. She's been doing baseline now on guys in uh, whatever it is. Is it STT or SQT, right? I, mm -hmm. I can't remember whatever mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. now. Um, she's been doing the baseline on the entry guys, you know, as, as far as like hormones and metabolomics and stuff like that. Um, and she's trying to move into brain scans and things. But that I mean that's that's the evidence that we need, but you know once you do however many combat deployments and you've had however many thousand TBIs over pressurization TBIs, um, and experience untold trauma and chaotic sleep and sleep deprivation and like all the stuff, alcohol abuse, psychedelic or not uh, psychotropic medications so like antidepressants and stimulants and things like that. Um, well, now we do a brain scan, and what, what the hell are we seeing, right? Yeah. Like, what what's caused? And we didn't have a baseline, so that so now that's your baseline before you go do something else. But we've never had that. So, does transcranial magnetic therapy work? Yeah, probably. How well? We we don't know. Like, we we need to do all these studies, and the same thing with ibogaine and psilocybin and LSD and ayahuasca and hyperbaric oxygen therapy and like all of these modalities that we can use to help guys recover from the lifestyle we've led but if you don't have hard science to at least be able to mm -hmm. approach it mm -hmm. in a scientific way right so you need and enough, the community won't accept it yeah, until you, you this need, research is you, pushed well, you need enough data to even launch research right because you can't say well uh, here's a hundred guys. So they'll tell you their great experience. That's not enough for research, right? You have to have some sort of metrics. Um, and so what, you know, I've been out since 2013 and I, I don't even know how many non-for-profits I'm on a medical advisory board for, and they all have their own elixir, um, you know, and they all have their own focus. This is mm -hmm. what they really think mm -hmm. is going to be mm -hmm. the thing. Everybody's stovepiping. And I'm like, all I've ever tried to do is bring them all together and go, Hey man, let's get, everybody together and let's get some entry level data yep. like let's let's just anything we can think of as much as we can afford let's just and that's what i did with the seals when they came to me with their problems i just shotgun it man it's like i didn't know so just test everything then do some interventions and see what fixes and now you have some data and now you can say look i have some data and now maybe you can get an irb maybe you can get some studies done so let me go so it started with opioid addiction mm-hmm but as you've taken it further over the years, you you found that you know psychedelic therapy works for not only addiction, 
because, you know, quite frankly, I, I, I chewing tobacco was my addiction. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I told you I stopped That's amazing. after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was 19 years of, of dipping. Uh, and, and I stopped cold turkey. But so you've got addiction. You've got depression. What, what else are you finding that the therapy is, is a good cure for? So it, it helps with anxiety. <laughs> it helps with post-traumatic stress. We've seen patients resolve uh, severe pain syndromes. Um, and we've also seen improvements in cognitive performance that are related to mild TBI. Because for your community, the signature injury is actually the repetitive exposure to small and large blasts. Uh, And there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms between TBI and post-traumatic stress. So doctors often find it easier to diagnose post-traumatic stress and give you like a bunch of medications rather than look at what's going on. So you basically just address those well, pretty much what 90% of the American community is. is, I just assume everybody has mild TBI. Well, but even the anxiety, the depression, the mental health issues within the U.S. I mean, the the way you're describing it is pretty much every American... Is eligible. Well, for, I mean, if you this type of treatment. if you think I wouldn't say si- I have a game, but in when it comes to mushrooms, reforms. potentially, yeah. yeah, or ketamine, and yeah. and and then like I was talking about earlier, uh, the default mode network of like how how you perceive yourself in the world. Um, that's that's not only altered during the experience, but a lot of the psychedelics are classified as uh, is it neuroplastogens or psycho psychoplastogens. Mm-hmm. Um, Meaning, meaning that it increases the neuroplasticity of the brain and allows you to regrow tissue and to reconnect tissue in a different way. So while you're in the experience, you've experienced it, you're actually, you're actually perceiving your thoughts and your experiences differently than you've ever perceived them before. Once that drug wears off, you still perceive things slightly different. And that's the neuroplasticity. Like you've actually made some new connections. You actually, psychedelics allow brain regions to communicate that never communicate, never in your entire life. Like since you, since you were formed, since your brain formed, these regions of your brains haven't, haven't really connected in a conscious way. And, and these psychedelics will allow you to do that. And that's, and that's why you can, and you think about it. it so it's like the difference between me telling you a fact and you're trying really hard to remember that fact all day. Now, when you go to sleep tonight, you can take that out of your working memory and you put it in your, into your long-term memory and you'll start forming connections with other stuff, you know, from all different directions. And then when you wake up tomorrow, you'll actually know something about that fact that I told you without learning any, without learning anything else, because you've looked at it from different ways and now you've associated it for as an example, when I did ayahuasca, I had this really like an, well, who knows, time's distorted, but I felt like about an hour long um, experience where I was looking at hand tools and power tools and how they relate to the shape of the human hand and the function of the arm. (laughs) And why that came up, I have no idea, but it was, it was the most, it was the most random thing. And it was, you know, it was like comparing it to branches on a tree and then there'd be like a saw and then a hand and uh, I, I don't know. So what I was doing is I was thinking about things that I've thought of a million times in a different way than I'd ever thought of them before. Mm-hmm. And the neuroplasticity would allow me to keep doing that forever. And sort of the big thing with PTSD is that we're living in a, you know, whether, whether you can point to the trauma or not, we are living in essentially a traumatic world all the time because we weren't, we weren't meant to, we weren't meant to do this, right? We weren't meant to live the way we live. We weren't meant to have, um, 
you know, this amygdala function, this fight or flight symptom, you know, pathway stimulated all the time. It was meant to be episodic. You know, a bear came out, you saw the bear, you got away from the bear, it went away. And then you processed that when you slept in, at night and you categorized it and whatever. And now you can think about it in a different way. And, and, and now you'll have a plan next time you see a bear and it becomes less traumatic, whatever. But now it's like everything all throughout the day, traumatic, 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 traumatic. Um, and it, and that word is, is a trigger, traumatic. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything major. It's just a stressor, a stressor, a stressor. And it's a stressor that you don't know what to do with. That's what PTSD, all PTSD is, you've experienced a lot of crap that you don't know what to do with. Like you don't, you don't know how to organize it. And until you can organize it, you can't work with it. And so when you improve the function of the brain to organize through neuroplasticity and through the actual conscious experience of connecting all these regions of your brain in a way that you've never connected them before, you can look at it from a different angle and go, oh, that, that's actually not that big of a deal. You think, about, you think about trauma as a kid, like an abused child. Why is that so hard to get through? Because you don't have any understanding when you're a kid. Right, like who—that is your understanding. Like who, like who's safety? Who, who is safety to a kid? Grown-ups, generally, and more specifically, your parents. Well, if your parents are the ones abusing you, what the hell does that mean? So, what, so you don't know what to do with that, and so you just suppress it, and you suppress it, you suppress it, you suppress it. But all the while, that's working on you. And yeah. so, the same thing, just like your general life. There's all sorts of stuff. If you aren't dealing with those traumas, they just add up. Just like if you don't deal with injuries, they add up. If you don't deal with, you know nutritional deficiencies they add yeah. up like it's whatever it's like it's a lifetime of buildup and everyone in society seems to have it now like every, it's just it's the way we live and especially the last two years yeah but before we go forward let, let, let's go back so dr martin um you you said depression addiction uh trauma let's and talk I, about I don't know if, i'm sorry go I, I don't know if this is an official but i can't tell you how many people in our community have said this has changed their life they, after they did I began like I don't I don't have any craving for alcohol whatsoever and like yeah. and like they weren't even alcoholics they just drank on a fairly regular basis and like I don't like I don't I'm not stopping myself there's no willpower I'm not interested in it and you've treated how many I, I know specifically from special operations well over 200 oh it's uh, 550 at this point 550 yeah yeah last year it was, it was just 20 percent of the force <laughs> there was a huge increase I mean obviously COVID kind of drove that and then you know, Marcus and Amber really kind of promoting it, that it drove a lot of patients to to seek out treatment. Um, we've also seen over 80 family members at this point. So we're, we're, we're seeing also the spouses and the adult children, because if you don't heal the whole family unit, you're sending the guy back into an environment which is, you know, reactive and... Uh, yeah, just problematic because the, the wives have also been traumatized. And, by and, and some of those spouses too, I know. Well, I mean, well, they lost their their husbands. Correct. And, and so yeah, yeah, gold yeah. star There's, widows. We have treated yeah. gold star widows, and and um, yeah, we've seen uh, improvement also in, in grief because grief underlies a lot of trauma. Right when when people have PTSD, is actually unprocessed grief. Um, so that's five hundred and fifty, and I know we're not going to name names, but knowing the community the, mm -hmm. between the three of us some of the people have attended people are starting to open their aperture to this and what i mean is some high ranking yeah uh you know senior enlisted and and officers mm -hmm. yeah are, are and, raising and, their hand to say hey i need this and, and to be honest i mean not to get ahead of our skis we're at least 10 years away from the military ever accepting this you know mm -hmm. if they if they ever do mm -hmm. um it, it's a very conservative, slow-moving organization, as you know, mm -hmm. and they're very risk-averse and things like this. So the the, the active duty 
I don't have a whole lot of hopes for this going. Yeah. Well, we had that conversation. I remember the the Saturday or after the Friday night where when we did I began, we're going to get to that whole experience. All of us looked at each other and we're like, why why wouldn't we do this every time we came back from one of those those deployments? Mm-hmm. Like as a reset before you even get to see your family. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, it, and it does do that. It's a great term. It reset. completely resets yeah. the, the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. No, and I think that uh, a lot of kind of ancient kind of warrior traditions have this uh, transition where you go from wartime to peacetime and you either spend you know, time farming or they did sweat lodges or there was mm. some, some kind of process or even in the Second World War, right, when people had some time to spend on the boat processing, it took them two weeks to get back home. But now that we, where we have international Two, two travel, weeks if you were lucky. Yeah. 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 You just, uh, you're back in eight hours. So, so you know, again, you, we get off track there, but you know, we talk about the normal modalities, the the mm-hmm. modern practices. You said the VA because they handed me like fifteen, uh, you know, different pills. Uh, why is this so drastically different? Talk about how you know depression, anxiety is treated from a normal, traditional medicine approach. Uh, yeah. So the the way that we've treated things in in the West <clears throat> is to uh, target just one receptor with a single compound. For example with benzodiazepines, right? Like we're just um, kind of numbing and calming the nervous system, but anything that changes the mind changes the brain. So you're actually gonna create a process of rewiring that when you get off of the drug, you're gonna get withdrawal. And withdrawal looks different for different drugs, right? Like opioid withdrawal is different from alcohol, is different from benzodiazepine, but they all are uncomfortable and just problematic because you actually get the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, whereas psychedelics, uh, like Kirk was saying, is they they come in and they turn off the default mode network, which is just this um, this these structures that are communicating in a specific pattern. And if if you really pay attention to your thoughts, you'll realize that there's not not much original thinking going on. We always go down the same loops. We think about one thing, and that takes us to another, 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 another. And we're either living in the future or living in the past. We're projecting it to future scenarios, or we're regretting things that happened in the past. Uh, and what psychedelics is, is that they just, you know, turn that off. So your brain for the first time in decades or forever is able to just create new connections. And then that increased plasticity afterwards allows you to adopt new habits as well. And that's why the process of integration is so critical with psychedelics. I would say 70% of the benefits actually happen after the experience. Um, and, because, uh, and 100% of the durability happens after the experience. Yeah, if you so. just take a psychedelic and don't change anything in your life, it's going to wear off yes. after like a month or two. But if you implement meditation or breath work or physical exercise... The holistic approach that you apply. Yes, to- then you you could experience the benefits indefinitely. And that's why it's so important to, to work with a coach, to have structure, to take your time to prepare for the experience, and then to, to integrate it properly. I, you know, I remember watching, uh, you know, my former uh, brother-in-law go mm-hmm. in and out of drug rehab centers. <clears throat> in the one, come out, he'd yeah. good for a few weeks, you know, you know fall off the wagon, back to a drug. It, it, and it's, I, I think for a lot of people listening, it may be odd to treat a drug addiction with what with they drug. with another drug, mm-hmm. but I mean the the research and the data shows that this has been just wildly successful for addiction. Correct. Yeah, I would say it's about three hundred percent more successful than what we're currently using. At least, yeah. I and mean, I, MDMA, MDMA on its own. Uh, there's a recent study on that where it's uh, it's three standard deviations more powerful than SSRIs with a single treatment with one treatment. And SSRIs take months to work because they're working 
through downregulation of receptors. Um, they're changing of, uh, of receptors. So, you, you know, your neurons, they release these neurotransmitters and neuropeptides into this cleft, this open area where they're floating around. And it depends on what receptors that other neuron has, what it's going to pick up. And then what it picks up and pulls in processes it differently. It tells that nerve what it's going to do and what it's going to connect to. Um, and so SSRIs change what's in that cleft and they change the receptors on there. And so they change your thinking over time. Um, and it's working on the serotonergic, like, you know, we, like, you know, we have a noradrenergic, noradrenergic, which is like, uh, nor, noradrenaline is adrenaline for the brain, Ep epinephrine, norepinephrine, right? Norepinephrine is adrenaline for the brain. Epinephrine is adrenaline for the body. Uh, so we have a noradrenergic system that's primarily uh, firing our fight or flight and our attention, right? Uh, think about it when you're in fight or flight, how many things are you paying attention to, right? It's like you're focused on one thing, but you can see everything for 180 degrees, right? And you're, and you're gonna take in any new threat immediately, instantaneously. Now you can't run around like that all the time, it'd be exhausting as no, hell, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you have an endo, endocannabinoid receptor uh, thing that, that, that's changing you know, what regions of your brain you're communicating to. It has some pain, uh, it, it, pain threshold things. Um, uh, you, you have your serotonergic, which is wake promoting and al again, alertness. You have histamine, which is, so you have a lot of different, you know, and of course, endorphins, uh, um, opioids, essentially opioid receptors, endorphins, uh, same type of thing. Um, so this is all managing everything all of the time. And so when you change any bit of that, you're changing, you're changing the way the brain functions. And, and we keep going back to this default mode network. <clears throat> Think about when you go, when you wake up in the morning and your brain's just kind of, uh, and you're like taking a shower and you're like getting dressed, whatever, like your brain's just all over the place. That that's your default mode network, yeah. right? That's just you floating through life. Um, the metaphor I like to give is you, you think about it. If you had all the time in the world, no pressure to walk through the woods or the forest, like what path would you take to get from here to there? who knows kind of whatever but now something's chasing you or you have a time commitment you're going to like you're going to focus on this task this task network you're going to go on the path that you all, you always know um and the reason i i think the reason that they tell people to meditate in the morning I, this just occurred to me today when i was driving in i i think the reason they tell people to meditate in the morning is to get you out out of the default mode network and into the task oriented network earlier in the day and that's why people's days feel more productive um, but what the point I was going to get to is that, and to be, I'll add a little philosophy in here. Basically, everything you do is is for one of two things: it's it's reaction to fear or it's a desire for love, right? Some form of love, right? So you're moving towards or away from things at all points. And we live in a society where, uh, and we talked about earlier, the amygdala, which is our alerting mechanism, mm -hmm. the region of our brain that perceives threat. Our community is really good at perceiving threat. Thought of flight. We're yeah. really good at it. And they've done studies on it, functional MRIs, and they just show facial expressions. We're really good at perceiving threat. We're not really good at perceiving friendliness or happiness. Or, no, or it's just somebody who's trying to, to get one over us like, and then yeah, they'll attack. We're yeah. really good at perceiving threat. So we're running around with this threat network all the time going. And one, of the, things, on one of the things that these do when they, uh, like the research on MDMA is that it, it decreases the function of the amygdala to essentially zero. And that's with this 
feeling of love and connection is, it's just the absence of fear. That's all it is. So you're taking away all the fear. Once you take away all the fear, well, you know that, right? How do you do, how do you make decisions when you're stressed versus when you're completely relaxed and in a good place? And one of the, the revelations there was one of the people who helps you in San Diego, who's quite active, mm -hmm. I knew as a young SEAL, and he scared the living crap out of me. Mm -hmm. And now he's the most loving, welcoming individual. And the it, guy I was yeah. talking about, I went to the Amazon, same, yeah. same way. <clears throat> um, yeah, he was a big, burly, It, it helped them put that down. That, it, it helped them put down the warrior, Yeah, that, that, that constant fight mode. So, before we get, because I want to, I want to talk about the experience because mm -hmm. this was the most professional thing I've ever been through, and I had these preconceived notions about how it was going to be, and I was completely wrong. But to the point where I'm your biggest advocate, where people contact me and they're like, "Hey, dude, should I do this?" I'm like, "100%. Don't even think about it. Contact uh, Dr. Martin. Get signed up right away." And uh, Air Force buddy Eric just went through, and a couple of guys that have recommended they text me afterwards and they're like, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." And I know there's probably parents that may have kids or, or loved ones that have addiction and they've been trying all these different things. This may be the answer. But in terms of so I know within your I, I, I'm saying repertoire in my non-medical uh, verbiage here, Ibogaine is probably the, the the strongest substance you use. You have ayahuasca. And then I definitely want to talk about the five MEO DMT. But mm -hmm. what, what other things do you have in your arsenal that you use for? So we have treatment. access to ketamine, mm -hmm. which is also uh, <clears throat> beneficial for chronic pain. It can help with uh, suicidality. So there's some evidence that, uh, you know, having a, a session with, a, with ketamine can um, stop about 60% of people from wanting to kill themselves. So 60% improvement. And how long does that last? Uh, it's only about five days. Five so days. you might need another one. But oftentimes that, that short period is enough for you to like move away from the environment, to break up, you know, with a toxic person or clean your room. There's just like certain things you, you can do to, to just start feeling better. Um, we also have access to mushrooms. Mm -hmm. um, mushrooms is probably the most, the, the more, most studied compounds, uh, psilocybin. There's a lot of research from NYU, from Johns Hopkins, and it's the closest one to approval as well. Uh, MDMA probably is going to get approved 2023, and then psilocybin is going to be next after that. Uh, I'm microdosing psilocybin mm -hmm. uh, daily, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that from mm -hmm. a, from a daily perspective mm -hmm. of uh, uh, of maintaining. But um, now ketamine is being it's starting to be more widely used. A lot of centers are approved in the U.S. Yeah. What what does a ketamine treatment look like? What are because mm -hmm. I've heard people just feel like they. The, you know, the most common thing is that they, they melt into the chair and it's... Yeah, they feel like they're floating. It's a dissociative. So you're, you separate from your body. Mm -hmm. At higher doses, it's an anesthetic. And when you use it at, at about one-tenth of a dose... That's where it came from, anesthesia. Yeah. Anesthesia. Yeah. yeah. And it's used in battlefield medicine because it's a very safe yes. drug. So you can give it to somebody where you don't know their medical history because mm -hmm. you know it's not going to depress their respiration. So they, they have it in ambulances. They use it on children. Uh, most commonly, people associate it with being a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. So... And it is used as a kind of recreational drug as well. So there's there's a lot of abuse of ketamine and it is the one psychedelic that is addictive. So it's, it's definitely, you know, there's a cautionary aspect to ketamine, like it shouldn't be misused. But, you know, sometimes these things are. So let's let's get into the experience and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, open up as much as you can about yeah. San Diego. And, I, and I'm going to weigh in just from my perspectives. But mm -hmm. um, so I think we started planning a month out and I went in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so there was some pre-work. Talk about the pre-work 
before we even get to, to, to San Diego mm-hmm. and eventually uh, take the, the drive across the, uh, the border? Yes. Yeah, so the, the first step is a process of screening people, making mm-hmm. sure that they're uh, medically fit and also that they're not on medications that would be contraindicated that would interact with Ibogaine. Then there's a four, a, at least four weeks of preparing uh, where you're working with a therapist or a coach. And uh, there's a workbook that we send to people. So there's like exercises that you do. Uh, the main things that we want people to do before their experience is journaling, mm-hmm. meditation, physical exercise. Um, there would be a range of other things that would be great, but it's 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 hard to implement behavior change. Like a clean, clean diet. You wanted a clean diet a few weeks before. Yeah, exactly. And uh, once you kind of start implementing that, you start feeling better already. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need to be off of alcohol and off of stimulants for at least seven days before, which can be a challenge, but... As long as people are not physically dependent on alcohol, it's yeah. Sorry about that. I had a doable. few drinks on the flight. Out of to be honest, but okay, yeah. Um, and then you know, people meet us in San Diego. We have lunch together. Then we drive down to Mexico. It's about a forty-minute drive to the border, and then another twenty minutes to the location. In in so I remember. I think we we took off at twelve or, or one from San mm-hmm. Diego, but we, you also had us fast from that point on. Correct. Yeah. So uh, people are fasting. Once we get to Mexico, we do EKGs, we place IVs, and then uh, we have a little ceremony and we start the, the treatment process around 8.30 p.m. Is, is, the, is the fasting just to prevent absorption issues? Yeah, absorption and uh, aspiration if somebody vomits. Yeah, right. And also, like, if, if you guys are throwing up, we don't want to clean a lot. So. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk because I was mm-hmm. I was purging, I think is what you called it, but I was not physically throwing anything up, but I was purging mm-hmm. the entire uh, night. Now, it, step back from me because you know that that threw me off. I mean, you had doctors there. You, you had a cardiologist at one point. Is that correct? Yeah, we have a Stanford-trained cardiologist that is there during treatment night. And uh, there's always three medical professionals that are ACLF-trained. ACLF is Advanced Cardiac Life Support. Ibogaine has some risks associated with it, which is bradycardia, mm-hmm. and then some drug interactions where it can cause arrhythmias if it's combined, say, with methadone. So we also do a drug test on people just to make sure that they they don't have any drugs of abuse in their system. And we've had to turn people away because you know yeah. sometimes they pop positive. But you also, I, I know you took our, you took my weight, you took everyone's weight, mm-hmm. and then you specifically calculated the ibogaine dosage into a capsule based off people's weight. Is that correct or correct? Just- yeah. So there's a there's a range that we use, and then also uh, depending on their weight. Uh, so yeah, every dose is individualized. In the holistic approach, you know, you said we had a meditation, we had a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a gathering together, mm-hmm. uh, which was very spiritual, and you had us write out our our intentions of what we hoped to gain from uh, from the treatment. Funny enough, I came across that uh, what I'd written out mm-hmm. uh, the other day, and I, I have it in my everyday sort of uh, uh, calendar. I'm glad you kept that. Yeah. Comments. So in, in I, I know this, you know, I was with several. Uh, you know, special operations guys, uh, you had the beds laid out in a room, but you even hooked us up to heart monitors mm-hmm. uh, so that you're monitoring us through the entire uh, they also done magnesium drips during... Uh, we give people electrolytes orally. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, we, we uh, monitor people's heart rate because that, that is the most common thing when uh, 
giving Ibogaine is bradycardia. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually what you can do if, if somebody's heart rate drops, you just kind of pull them a little bit out of the experience. You wake them up and that's enough. But you don't know if they're bradycardic unless you're looking at a pulse oximeter or a heart monitor. So you guys mitigate risk mm-hmm. to, to, to the highest degree possible. Correct. Yeah. And then in terms of, I was also impressed of setting the environment. You had lights on the ceiling. You had background uh, music to, to make it as... Uh, enjoyable, I guess, as you could say? Yeah, well, I would say evocative because these these are experiences that are very much dependent on context. So the light, the sound, the smell, and then obviously the music, uh, the musical selection or the playlist is designed to evoke emotions mm-hmm. because you want people to sometimes uh, address things that are challenging so you can have something that it's like a little bit faster tempo. Um, then there's songs that are slower. And in some cases... You know, some practitioners use music from Gabon, which is the the culture or the religion is called Buiti. And that is a whole different kind of experience to to actually have kind of the traditional music. Is that uh, East African? Yeah, yeah. what it's, it's it's music designed for Iboga experiences. Mm-hmm. And for the Western ears, it can be a little bit like unmelodic and disjointed, but it keeps the heart rate from dropping because it never really lets you kind of relax into the mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think people completely under miss, uh, um, underestimate the, the significance of the container that, you know, of your environment when you're doing this. Um, as an example, when people do MDMA recreationally, mm-hmm. it's a completely different, subjective like if i'm watching somebody do mdma recreationally it's a party drug and they're acting like party party animals yeah. raves yeah. right but when you do mdma in a clinical setting and you're doing it's a completely different thing people are breaking down they're crying they're yeah i mean it's it's so the environment that you do it in is just as important as the as the drug itself. Absolutely. Yeah, and then also the therapeutic relationship that you have to the people, like mm-hmm. the therapeutic uh yeah, that the trust that you have in the therapist or the provider is is really important and critical, and being able to just which, really which our community like sucks at, which yeah. is one of the benefits of this drug in the first place, is to open up some trust and vulnerability in our community because mm-hmm. they're very walled off people that are always pers- looking for threats. You, you don't trust me, I don't, Kirk? Not not hundred percent. Okay, <laughs> we'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's. We're, we're going to take a, uh, a mid roll break here. Uh, but before we do, we usually end it with a question. We're going to put you on the spot. And you can always answer after, uh, after the break. Uh, we, we ask you what we call the hard questions. What's the, the hardest decision you've ever had to make in your life? I would say that uh, moving away or, or walking away from ophthalmology, which would have been a pretty easy and lucrative career, especially because I would have been you know, the fourth generation of my family to become an eye surgeon. Uh, my uncle, my cousin, my grandfather, my great grandfather. So it's kind of runs in the family. So that was not a popular decision, as you can imagine. Yeah, I thought you were going to go there, um, or, or even taking you know your your loved one to go try the the, the aboga experience. But uh, did you have a lot of people telling you like, hey, don't do this. This is risky. You're you're accepting too much risk. I mean, it was the family you still have that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, hopefully still, that's, but that's it's, exciting. It's gotten better yeah. because there's greater understanding of the the effectiveness and the importance of these treatments in addressing the mental health crisis that we have. But back in 2000, there wasn't really a lot of data, or a lot of research, and 
I had gotten into, you know, the best residency program in Mexico. So it was, um, yeah, it was not, counterintuitive not a, yeah, exactly. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good one. All right. Well, uh, we'll be right back. And we are back with Dr. Uh, Martin uh, Poblanco and Kirk Parsley, Dr. Uh, Kirk Parsley, uh, talking about the rise of psychedelic therapy, which we've, you know, all, well, Kirk and I have done it's, uh, and you've dedicated your life to, and, uh, I know there's been a lot of, uh, publicity. It seems like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan has done some shows on it. Mm -hmm. uh, def definitely Tim Ferriss has done many, many shows on it. Almost yeah. seems like every show is uh, almost on psychedelics, but where we left off was, uh, the Friday night group of, you know, five special operations, uh, soldiers, uh, have now taken the Ibogaine after, uh, you know, some meditation and mm -hmm. some intention setting. Of course, they've been medically screened, hooked up to, uh, you know, uh, EKG machine or, or, you know, monitoring their heart. And so they're all in the same room, environment set, music, the lights, everything is very intentional to evoke uh, emotions and reactions. What does the typical Ibogaine uh, sort of, I, I hate to say trip, because I always say like an LSD trip. Journey. Journey, mm -hmm. journey. What, what does that look like for your average person? So everybody's different, but um, generally it takes anywhere from 45 minutes up to an hour and a half to start. People feel just like heavy. Um, they start having this very vivid imagination where you really can't tell, like, is it starting? Is it not starting? So it's, it's, it's kind of subtle. Um, usually what people report is a six to 10 hour window of what they call visions, which is... I wouldn't say hallucinations because it is more like a waking dream state. It's like mm -hmm. having a lucid dream, being awake in the dream, and then seeing the content of your memory displayed in visual format. So people are able to uh, focus on a specific memory, almost like pull it out of the file cabinet, open it up, and it becomes a short movie. And it's specific things that affected them. It could be interactions with a parent. It can be traumatic things that happened to them, either in wartime, relationships, or childhood. And you're from your perspective, you're almost like floating in the room, observing what happened. And that observer role also allows certain emotional separation so you don't get re-traumatized by what you're seeing. But you're objectively observing what happened to that child. And now you're seeing it through the eyes of an adult. So you have more tools to recontextualize the memory, to forgive you know, the perpetrator, to let go, or to just understand better what happened. Earlier in their conversation, we were talking about like how children... Um, they just don't understand like what what's going on. Like it could be something as simple as your you know your artwork getting rejected by a parent because they were busy, and that could be trauma or a little brother being born and suddenly people don't pay as much attention to you. Um, and in the moment you don't you don't you don't you don't understand what's going on and you think it was your fault for some reason and mm -hmm. you blame yourself. Uh, but then through the through the eyes of an adult you see like okay that's what happened okay look I'm gonna let that go. Yeah. Um, so that goes on and, and there's a certain intelligence to the medicine where it, it shows you what you need to see and you become your own therapist. So you you have this almost this conversation with your higher self where, you know, it's it's a very direct experience as well. It doesn't let you bullshit, doesn't let you look away. It, it, yeah. it really shows you your faults to, uh, you know, with minute detail, which is not fun. And that's why people don't generally want to do Ibogaine right away again, because it, it is it is pretty pretty confrontational, um, but sometimes we have to go through that. So some people say it's like That's 10 years. It's, of, it's, known the, it's known as the father 
of the psychedelic medicine because it teaches harsh lessons. Right. Not the father, the yeah. godfather. And, and, it's a stern and, father and, figure. And, yeah. sure. and ayahuasca yeah. is the is the mother. Yeah. Right. So it's like I'll gently show you. Something. And, and so ayahuasca, which I've never done, is that it's I don't want to say is it a milder experience or just a different experience? It's it's different. So ayahuasca, it's a it's a different category. It's also tryptamine, similar to five meo or mm -hmm. or mushrooms, and it's it's much more visual. So ayahuasca is is you know geometries and seeing jungles and seeing you know temples it's everybody different obviously mm -hmm. but that a lot of people power report tools. that power tools in the case of kirk <laughs> yeah so, so it's, it's funny you said you know it takes 45 minutes to, to an hour and a half i you know i definitely felt like i was slowly melting into the the, the bed and then right around 45 minutes to an hour i felt it starting to hit i think by an hour 30 i, I don't know if i said it audibly i'm like i'd like to get off this uh <laughs> this train now <laughs> yeah. get off the ride. stop the ride <laughs> but it was just you know one it was almost like every thing that was in my dreams was like had these like triangle shapes like all over people's skin that i saw it was it was weird but i i you know every time i opened my eyes i'd You've see the, the ceiling lizard people Lizard, there were lizard people. Oh. It, it was some weird things going on, people mm. running across. Um, but if I wanted to open my eyes, that vision would stop mm -hmm. and I would just breathe and then I, I would go back. What was interesting, and you told me afterwards, and I want to talk about afterwards, um, you know, my liver was oscillating at a million miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And I was purging, I think, more than some of the other uh, guys in the room. Of course, nothing was coming out. We had the bucket bowl right there but you said you know sometimes damage is held at the cellular level and that's your body just sort of purging that damage yeah so purging can be energetic it can be spiritual like like you were mentioning it's not that you were actually vomiting anything but people are still retching and in the experience it can be almost like a, a vision of, of of getting like a demon out or mm -hmm. you know whatever way your brain is representing that that thing that you're getting out um Purging can also manifest with shaking. It can manifest with yawning. Um, so purging is, is is a concept in psychedelics which doesn't always refer to vomiting. Yeah. yeah. And it can come out the other end. Correct. Yeah. With ayahuasca, people do get diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, IBM not as common. Yeah, I know some guys had to get up and use the other uh, restroom. I, 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 don't, I didn't have that. Um, I couldn't. Did, I did ayahuasca. I couldn't purge. You couldn't purge, and I really, really, really wanted to. And yeah. I, I kept trying. I was like flipping my epiglottis like this, like, for like <laughs> ten minutes. I'm like, come trying on, to induce it. Come on, man. Come on. That start. Nope. No. no. Couldn't. The morning after mm -hmm. was I, I. You know, I can't quite remember what time <clears throat> I got up. But we started at eight p.m. You said. Mm -hmm. I think I got up at at ten. I was exhausted. I was because I, I guess you're not sleeping. Your brain is on rapid fire, but it felt like I'd entered the matrix. And then at the end of the movie, they shut the computer off. My brain felt like it was shut off. Mm -hmm. But I remember it took two people to help me get out of bed. And then I, I just couldn't walk uh, by myself. Eventually, it came back very quick, walked downstairs. And of course, you have a chef mm -hmm. there the entire weekend that's, you know, uh, cooking whole foods. Everything's natural. And she brought me a uh, strawberry shake. And I was so grateful. And I drank uh, probably half the shake. And then I uh, mm. I said, you know, the other people around the, uh, the the main living room, I said, hey, would you excuse me? Mm -hmm. Run to the bathroom and just three projectiles 
and just, yeah, my stomach couldn't hold mm-hmm. food at, at the time. Mm-hmm. I just had to wait a few more hours. Yeah. Yeah. So the day after I begin is, is usually challenging because people feel exhausted from having done all this psychological work. Uh, their body still feels heavy. They haven't been able to sleep. And Ibogaine has a stimulant effect as well. So it's, it's just a, a weird sensation. But by nightfall, people feel better and then mm-hmm. they sleep. And then the next morning, they feel great. So we always kind of, you know, just warn people that the, the gray day is, is not the happiest always. It, 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 nothing about it was, you know, insurmountable. It mm-hmm. was, it, you, you knew it had a positive effect. And sometimes you, you've got to put your body through pain to, mm-hmm. to induce healing. It's purposeful sur- yeah. suffering. Abs- absolutely. And, and you can feel that there's a purpose to it. Now, I, and I know we were journaling. Uh, we're talking to you guys. You guys are, are coaching us on it. You were talking about what we saw and what that you know, could potentially mean. Um, and it was, again, the, the, the setting and the environment were so relaxing. And from the specific location, we could see the beach across uh, Rosarita. Um and then yes, the next that night we slept well. And then the next morning, uh, five meo DMT. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about that because that was probably the most spiritual thing I've ever been through. And having mm-hmm. just gone to Everest, it still dwarfs Everest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a pretty phenomenal compound. So the five meo DMT generally derived from the secretions of a toad that lives in northern Mexico, and uh, when you smoke it or you vaporize it, it induces a mystical type experience. And what that means uh, by mystical type experience is a sense of oneness, of unity. Some people feel infinite love. Some people feel they're like dissolving and merging with the universe or that they're at the center of the galaxy or that they meet God, you know, whatever God means to you. So it's a, it's a very uh, profound experience. It also has a lot of similarities with near-death experiences where people feel that they, that they, they die and then they come back. And then there's this like, very profound feeling of gratefulness and appreciation and then wanting to make changes so that your second half of your life is, you know, better or more meaningful. Um, each experience, it's between five and 20 minutes. And we tend to dose on the lower range um, and then let people kind of like step into it and go as deep as they want. That's right. Yeah. That, so this one was, I felt amazing, but there was this part of me that felt like I was selfish that my family couldn't experience this. Mm-hmm. I, and, um, uh, and it's funny, I know a lot of people know 5-MeO-DMT for Mike Tyson on the Joe Rogan podcast yeah. calling it the ego killer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, that, that's what you explained it to me when we had lunch. You said it's the complete ego death. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want that. Yes. Like, sign I, me yeah. up. And, now, and that's. I, I need that every month. I need that right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. And that, I, I couldn't think of a better way to, to end it. And the way, again, you, you guys set the conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to share what I saw because it was very personal to me. But you did have to, you, you had to give us a little preparatory training of, hey, you're either going to, or at first you're going to feel like you want to fight it. And you said, hey, we need you to repeat some phrase to let go. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt it was easier than, than, than I thought it was going to be. I just melted right into the, the journey. Correct. Yeah, it can, it can be uh, rough coming into it. Uh, it feels like you're almost like jumping out of an airplane or being projected by a rocket ship. Some people mm-hmm. feel they're falling through the ground. So the first few seconds, your ego is trying to hold on. 
But once you are able to breathe and let go, then it, it's generally one of the top three spiritual experiences for people of their lives. Is it true? I think, I don't know if I, I heard it from you or somebody else that they actually think the brain releases the same chemical upon death? Yeah, there, there is some theories that the pineal gland uh, releases DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, these are... It was, it was actually just validated last month. Um, they found it in, in rats or... Uh, no, they, they were doing a functional MRI on... Mm. Um, somebody who passed away? I want to say a dementia patient. Mm. Uh, they're studying him and he died on the table. And they watched his brain go through all of the transformations. And wow. like, yeah, it's definitely, definitely the exact pattern of the mm -hmm. DMT. Yeah. We all have DMT in us. We all have 5-MeO-DMT. And more than we used to assume. So it's... Uh, and we have cannabinoids, which is why we have mm -hmm. cannabinoid receptors. And we have, you know, essentially opiates, which are our, our endorphins. You know. So we have receptors for all of these plants because they're on the planet with us and we're all part of the same planet. Mm -hmm. yeah. We evolved together. <laughs> we evolved I, together to be on the planet at the same time. Yeah, when we went through that one, you know, I, she wouldn't mind me using her name, uh, Tori mm -hmm. was there to, to save space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my nickname was Captain Intensity. And Why is that? I don't know. I can't figure that out. I don't know. She said she's never seen me smile so large with the tears coming down. I don't know if you remember. You, oh, were you, you the laughing Buddha? No, I wasn't not no. laughing, just just no. crying. And, and um, when I came to you in the last one, I, I looked at you and I said, "Dude, you are an angel amongst men." It is more people need to experience this. It would just let them let go because I I know specifically that specific part of the journey, regret and guilt just that I'd held on to selfishly mm -hmm. just just went away. Let's talk about once people leave. I mean, that's probably one of the most crucial parts. Is you want them to one, they continue to go through the coaching mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and group work. Uh, you hold group sessions, talk, talk about what the post journey, uh, work looks like in order to, to sustain those results. So there's uh, three, uh, therapy sessions with a therapist that you were working with prior. And then there's a weekly integration call that is for guys that have gone through the experience where they can, you know, share, um, and the main tools that we recommend are breath work, meditation, Fasting, physical exercise, getting sleep under control, and optimizing hormones. Well, when you have these mild traumatic brain injuries, there's a lot of hormone dysregulation. And if you don't get that part right, it's like not having, you don't have the right building blocks to then build the right kind of emotions. So uh, I always recommend everybody to get a very comprehensive and all of those hormone are, panel. And all of those are balanced during sleep. Yeah. yeah. So every night they're rebalanced while you sleep. And yeah. so if you don't sleep well, you don't rebalance your hormones. You can't, you can't integrate, you can't repair, you can't emotionally categorize all of the stuff that you're trying to get better at. You can't get better at when you're not sleeping well. Yeah, insomnia, if prolonged, is a type of brain injury. So you have to address it. Builds up the same type of um, beta amyloid as... Yeah. It, it's, it seems that you've almost built like a tribe within a tribe. I know you, you've been treating a lot of the special operations guys, a lot, a lot of, I hate to use the word civilians, uh, average people now like me. Um, but there's also this sense of community when you've gone through that together, uh, mm -hmm. that shared adversity. I think that, that that is one of the more powerful things why people are having such good outcomes is because you guys already have this very tight community and then you support each other uh, when there's you know difficulties and people then are able to relate on a different level as well where you know are having conversations about like connection and love when and you know before the experience, I think those things would have been a little bit like, taboo mm -hmm. to even go there 
um, we're seeing much higher success rates with um, veterans than we were with opioid addicts. And it is because you guys are peak performers. You already know what it takes to achieve results and you're willing to work at it. And the delta between where you were and where you get to is it's much bigger. Because many of the guys that come in are actively suicidal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of success rates, I mean, you've seen the, the positive effects. You know, people are talking about it. Uh, I know within our community, um, but for some people, you know, they may need another journey. Uh, it may not be ibogaine. I mean, how does that look? For, for everybody's different. So, yeah. uh, many people are microdosing, which is taking tiny doses of psychedelics, which are supposed to be subperceptual, and then they feel more present, more positive, uh, better able to focus. Uh, other people have a journey every quarter. Mm-hmm. You know, they they take a big dose of mushrooms or they go to an ayahuasca retreat. Um, but everybody's different, so there's no kind of standard protocol. The the microdosing has been amazing, and, and I know, particularly for me, it's psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for some people the psilocybin wasn't as effective, and so they went to microdosing of LSD. And when they told me that, I'm like, ooh, that sounds uh, dangerous. But you know, explain microdosing. For people, because you're not going on a journey, mm-hmm. you're not hallucinating. And the two words I would say is for me, it's been mood. And I know you said present. It's like energy, mood and energy. I, f- I feel present is a, is a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the neuroregenerative benefits of these compounds, you're still getting them at smaller doses. Uh, Many people after like a large dose of mushrooms, for example, they feel this this glow and you can get that same glow from taking one tenth of that dose. And then you don't get any of the psychological risks. So yeah, microdosing is taking subperceptual doses of psychedelics. And people do microdose Iboga or, or Ibogaine or both? They, they microdose both of those okay. too. It's just much to... harder to find Ibogaine in Iboga. Yes. Yeah. Do you have to... Is there, is there a cycle to microdosing? Like use it for a period of time, then come off, or can you just use it all the time? I would recommend, uh, yeah, using it Cycling. for a few months and then mm-hmm. stopping, and also uh, giving some breaks in between so yet that your brain doesn't develop tolerance. Tolerance is always requiring higher doses, but mm-hmm. if you take, for example, five days on, two days off, then you don't develop tolerance. Yeah, but I yeah. noticed that. Yeah, I, I had to go from 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams mm-hmm. a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For people listening, you know, who, again, their only access is to, to, to modern traditional medicine, how can they find you and how can they get started in, in this path to, to potentially doing the, uh, the journeys and the treatment? So they can find us online. The website is missionwithin.org. Um, our focus is military uh, first responders and now families of military, uh, but we can direct them to the right resources if they're dealing with addiction or they, they're wanting to deal with trauma. We have some weekends that are for civilians, uh, so the same protocols uh, are used for you know people dealing with depression, anxiety. Within the community of uh, you know treatment facilities, I'm sure there's you know which ones are good, which ones are bad. I mean, the, the reputations are out there. Correct. Yeah, yeah we, can, we can direct them to the good ones. Now, from a, uh, a regulation standpoint, I, I, I would be pro-regulation of once the U.S., you know, which, you know, military, you said may take 10 years. Military is always slow with things like that, very right. quick with other things. But once it is approved within the, the U.S., you'd be pro-regulation to some degree that some, you know, people offering 
these treatments have to go through some sort of certification training. It's got to be <clears throat> regulated or, or absolutely. Yeah, I think that the the, the model that was followed by uh, cannabis, for example, just mm -hmm. having dispensaries is not the right way to go about with psychedelics because it is so much dependent on the context and on the preparation and the integration of these experiences. So there's some legislation uh, that was passed in Oregon that mandates clinics. And anybody can apply for a license to run a clinic, but there is a process of getting certified for that. So I think that is that is the right approach. Uh, and yeah, having medical professionals for Ibogaine is, is critical. Uh, Ibogaine is a little bit different than others. Yeah. Yes, it's not a risk-free drug. No. But you said it, like MDMA, people using it as a party drug. Then, right. Yeah. And, and people will always find a way to abuse. Well, and, and the problem is w when you open it up and you make, uh, and you're too laissez-faire about who who has access, then people do get bad outcomes. And then that becomes part of the storyline of, of, of that drug, right? Well, that drug led to this and that and that. Well... You know, you can you can abuse anything. You can abuse a car, right? You can kill people with a car. That doesn't mean cars are yeah, yeah. weapons, you know. But that's you know that's the way things go. So, I think I think in order to keep the movement going, it's better to have regulations, of course, um, so that so that you can say, well, there's a, you know there's a difference. Like there's like, like there's a difference between a dentist using cocaine to numb your gums, like they used to do, and people abusing cocaine right so but now it's like well that's a scheduled one drug and and that's how these things become scheduled one drugs again it's because people abuse them and do stupid things under the influence of them and then and then oh well we need to crack down on that because it's a it's a it's a social harm issue at that point and so then they crack down on it and you lose like we've just lost what 60 60 years of research potential research on on psychedelics that we're kind of just now reordering you know re getting getting back into it in the last 10 years or something yeah because it all got shut down um and if people want to donate to your organization <clears throat> it's a non-profit correct so the the non-profit that we're working with is heroic cards project okay and they are a 501c3 so they can accept donations and give a tax deduction and then they sponsor people to go through ayahuasca or through ibogaine so that some, is some of the listeners program. hey i want to support a veteran going through this they would go through their heroic cards project okay mm -hmm. yeah. and if people want to you know bring you in to speak to their organizations again mission missionwithin.org.org mission mm -hmm. okay um well thank you for joining us uh, in uh, i you know i mean it dr martin you've you've helped 550 souls where you know we know some of those souls might have taken their own lives had you not done this treatment and you've dedicated your life to, to helping others. That's, uh, that, is, uh, that is impactful. And it leads to the last question we ask uh, on the Everyday Warrior uh, podcast is, for Dr. Martin, what is a, a life well lived? How do you measure if you've lived well? So I would say uh, just... Um I think at the end of our life, we want to look back and we want to know that we helped people, that we made a difference. And right now, for me, the best way to do that is to get the research out there to be able to convince governments around the world that this is something that needs to be more widespread, more available. Um, so if we can document more extensively what we're doing and we can potentially change legislation, then that would be a life well lived. I could agree more. And we'll have links to, to your organization, to where they can find you. Maybe some of the listeners out there can help you move that research or that legislation uh, along. Again, thank you for joining us. 
And uh, to all of you, uh, all I can say is from a guy who was close-minded on this until the age of 43, it's worth uh, pursuing. Uh, I grew as, as a person. I've, I've changed my perceptions on a lot of things. And uh, most importantly, I think I came back healthier for my wife and my kids and my family, more loving and less ego. All right, mm. Dr. Martin, Dr. Parsley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.